0: and welcome to the Focal Therapy Clinic. My name is Claire Delmar, and in this audio series, I'm going to introduce you to some issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and almost never talked about. Prostate cancer is now acknowledged as the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. In the third of our series, I'm speaking with Mark Laniato, consulting urologist at the Focal Therapy Clinic and a leading innovator in imaging-led diagnostics and targeted treatment for prostate cancer. Mark has been a vocal advocate for focal therapy from his base at Friendly Health, where he is prostate cancer lead at Wexham Park Hospital, and has contributed to several pivotal clinical studies and trials on prostate imaging and focal therapy. Mark's known for the exceptional levels of understanding and empathy he develops with his patients. And it's for this reason, we're going to talk about the mental health challenges he helps his patients to manage. Mark, thanks for joining me.
1: Hi, Claire. It's great to be with you today. I'm I'm really excited about this. Thank you. It's a great topic to be talking about.
0: Well, wonderful. I mean, before we dive into um, mental health specifically, can you tell our listeners what your journey was to becoming a leading practitioner and a a champion of focal therapy?
1: Well, many years ago, of course, I went to medical school like everyone else, and I wanted to be a doctor to understand the human body to be able to help people and uh, eventually i started investigating prostate disease prostate cancer um, i was very much involved in trying to understand why prostate cancer spreads from uh, its local site in the prostate gland to going out into the bones and then when i was doing my training many it seems like many years ago now but uh, we used to do lots of open operations to remove prostates and send uh, patients for radiotherapy And um, I was always struck by the same difference between the severity of the disease and the the consequence of the treatments that they received. So I was always wondering how we could make our treatments fit the struggle or problem that the patients had. And so whilst I tried to improve my surgical delivery of treatment for prostate cancer through robotic prostatectomy eventually, the keyhole way there was always a feeling that I had that many of the patients probably could be helped by other means and so I looked for treatments that could be focused literally on the cancer itself and an area around it rather than necessarily treating the whole prostate so the basis has been trying to keep men as healthy as they are with their normal way of life treat the cancer but not to give them so many side effects as we had experienced in the past
0: and, and at that time, what, what was your sort of model of you know, treating the disease rather than the gland or organ? Was, was there other treatments for other diseases and organs that you, know, you saw as sort of a beacon for
1: this? Well, I mean, perhaps people are well have heard about uh, breast cancer. We know that breast cancer many years ago used to be treated by removal of the whole breast and tissue around it, mm-hmm. and then it became apparent that you could just actually remove the lump itself. Um, and you get the same sort of outcomes after ten to fifteen years. That was really the paradigm that really made people think about maybe not treating the whole gland when treating cancer. Mm-hmm. And, and in our particular specialty in urology, when I was certainly when I grew up, I was taught to remove the whole kidney, for example, if someone had kidney cancer. But you know, we now really try to just to, to remove that part of the kidney with the cancer itself and preserve the rest of the kidney when we do it. And similarly, other cancers is the same. We now try to remove the cancer plus their margin around it and preserve the rest of the organ if at all possible.
0: And of course, this is all made possible by uh, vastly improved diagnostics.
1: So as you say, in the past, when we treated prostate cancer and many other cancers, we really didn't know much about it. We'd have an idea that cancer was there, perhaps because you know, prostate cancer, because the PSA was high. We then we would examine the prostate, make a guess, perhaps if prostate cancer was present based on that alone and then do biopsies. The, the biopsies usually were not targeted because we didn't really know where the cancer was located. We had sort of an idea it was there somewhere. And then when we did the biopsies, we might make a diagnosis of cancer, but really we didn't know how much cancer was there. We didn't, certainly didn't know where it was, it was located in the prostate uh, typically. And so we were really struck with a problem. I mean, we'd know the patient had cancer. We wouldn't really know necessarily how bad it was. But at the same time, we knew that patients could die from it. I mean, in this country, about 11,000 men die from prostate cancer every year. So because we didn't know the burden of the disease, we didn't know how much disease was present, we really applied everything we could to deal with it, you know, which would be usually either surgery or radiotherapy. So in recent times, that's changed. Our ability to know where the cancer is located has improved dramatically since we've had the introduction of multiparametric MRI. And these are like having a digital finger. So if you imagine when a doctor sees a patient, he if he examines a prostate, let's put a finger in the back passage to check it, but he can only feel one side of the prostate, and that's the side on the back. But a, an MRI scan or a multi-parametric MRI is like an enhanced digital finger. It can check the front of the prostate, the, the, the size of the prostate, the top end, the lower end. You can look inside the prostate, and it can literally see where the cancer is located in the vast majority of cases. mm mm-hmm. So with that, with our ability to see where cancer is located, we can then now target our biopsies very carefully. So we can sample the areas that look abnormal uh, with precision. In the past, when we did our biopsies, we used to put them in randomly. Now we can do what are called MRI fusion biopsies. That is, we can fuse the MRI scan with live ultrasound. And when we do that, we can then make sure that our needles go in the right place. So the fact
0: that you have such precision biopsies and therefore knowledge of exactly where the cancer is and and how, how aggressive it is, that means you have better treatment options. Is that correct?
1: yes absolutely and just to say one more thing about the biopsies in the past we always did transrectal biopsies which were biopsies through the back passage we carried a great risk of infection now we almost always try to do transperineal biopsies those are biopsies done through the skin between the anus and the scrotum because there's very little risk of infection Mm and we can reach parts of the prostate we couldn't find before through the typical transrectal route.
0: So that all sounds like there's been some major improvements, both in the technology and and actually in the actual procedure. So I guess the question I really have is, does that actually help or in any way hinder the anxiety levels in your patients when they're told that they possibly have prostate cancer?
1: Well, as you can imagine, yes, it has helped. in the past, when someone had a negative biopsy before, many years ago, they still had about a one in three chance of having significant prostate cancer. Now, with precision MRI scans and precision biopsy procedures, we can say with almost 95% certainty, someone does not have prostate cancer if, he's, if, it's, if they are negative. But we can also say how severe the cancer is compared to before. So now we can categorise into men who have low-risk disease, which is very unlikely to affect them in their lifespan, and we also classify men into high with high-risk disease, the men who are likely to be affected by it. So being able to stratify men into risk groups has helped men deal with the disease much better than before and also has opened up many more options for treatment as well.
0: And in your own experience, what are the main mental health challenges that a man faces when he is diagnosed with prostate cancer?
1: Well, although men come in with a suspicion that prostate cancer is present, often it's a great surprise or a great shock that they find that prostate cancer has been diagnosed. As you can imagine, most of us like to believe we're healthy, fit and well, and then to be given a diagnosis of a cancer that potentially is life-threatening is a big shock to the system. Some men react to it with depression. They get sad, depressed, they isolate themselves. Some men take some time to recover and then want to react very strongly towards it. And other men can cope quite well. It helps, though, when dealing with the disease, when we're able to give much more precise information about how severe it is and What treatment options there are. Many men had already had some knowledge about the treatments. Often, it was knowledge about treatments from the past, and they were very worried and anxious about the potential for problems such as urinary leakage or um, loss of erections. And as as you can imagine, men, their mojo, if you like, is about being males, about getting erections. Um, And the thought of potentially losing that would be very worrying for a lot of people to have. Mm
0: -hmm. And how willing
1: are they to talk about this? As you can imagine, men are somewhat reticent. Men are usually quiet and they don't really open up their feelings very much. They certainly don't seek access to healthcare as much as, for example, women do. So it has to be an issue for many uh, men.
0: And do they often um, involve their families in some of these discussions and ultimately their, their decisions on treatment?
1: Certainly when I see a man who is at risk of prostate cancer and is coming back for diagnosis, I always ask them to bring a member of the family with them. Um, it's often that it, it, you know when you hear that you have cancer, that's the only thing you hear, and you don't listen to any more information that's brought into the discussion. So, yeah. bringing a family member is very helpful. So, a wife or a loved one or some other supporter, partner of any kind, is very is very helpful for that man dealing with a diagnosis. And so, we I, we do encourage that.
0: And do you actually feel that that helps with um, various levels of
1: anxiety? Yes, I certainly think it does. I mean, you know, problem shared is a problem halved. heart. That's a common statement. And I think it's certainly true for this. You know, the person who hears the diagnosis often will be distraught, and then the loved one will be giving much support. So it is helpful to have someone with you at the time. It's a very difficult time for many people. So often the, the other person will be thinking about more questions to ask, establishing that person's place with the diagnosis with the clinician. Um, so yes, I would recommend that.
0: So Basically, the mental health challenges are around anxiety and depression in, in your experience.
1: So certainly, I mean, yes, and that may be not manifest early on. It, it may come over time. So if a man is diagnosed with cancer, for example, and then he's told that actually we're not going to necessarily treat it. So we, we try to explain to men that this is a low risk disease that in some cases, anyway, not always, um, yeah. and that we can monitor it with uh, repeated blood tests, MRI scans, and sometimes biopsies. That, for some men, can be quite difficult to deal with, especially early on. Mm. For other men, they find that they can cope with that quite well, and they find that as time passes, they get more used to surveillance, and they find that less of an issue. But other men find that that's a continuous worry. You know, that time, You know, if you imagine a man has to have a test, a blood test every three months or so, initially in the beginning, um, it's okay once you've had a blood test and it's come back, say normal or low, but that time leading up to the next blood test can be quite anxiety invoking, and so there can be a lot of worry waiting for to hear the next PSA result. And similarly, of all the other tests we might need to do whilst we're monitoring them, so they might need another MRI scan after a year, potentially more biopsies, and and each of those uh, interactions can lead to more anxiety.
0: Um, so it's interesting, Mark, because what, what I observe are, are two things with um, the patients we deal with. One is when men come to us, they've searched online, and how you present the information to them is almost more important than what you present, because your state of mind in absorbing new information about you know, your own situation, your own future, is very much dictated by your state of mind. You know, Shopping for a holiday or a car when you're excited to spend is very different than looking for treatments for a disease that you are facing that is making you fearful. So that, that I find is, is, is something that we deal with men with anxiety and, and how we help them absorb the information. And the second thing I observe is a lot of men um, really like to be in control. So you mentioned earlier about active surveillance um, and how some men actually would, would embrace that because they can schedule their tests, when, where, how they're going to receive them, maybe even do things like, um, you know, look at the data. Um, so I wonder how you see men, you know, managing some of this anxiety through their online searches and also through their choice of treatment.
1: So managing the anxiety um, helps, it helps to know more about the disease that they have and the likely impact of that disease. So what I often uh, recommend patients do is to try and look at the site that gives probably the best idea of how well they'll do over time. And there is a site called predict prostate um, in which uh, a, a doctor or a patient can in, input his variables regarding the prostate cancer, so for example their age, their PSA, what was found on the prostate biopsies, the stage of the disease and their general health. And on that um, website they'll get information about the chance of dying from prostate cancer, the chance of dying from saliva cause and the chance of surviving.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's presented in a very clear way. To patients so that they can see, for example, if they have a significant chance of uh, surviving the disease without problems or they're more likely to get issues which will potentially cause problems for them over time. But I often use that as a tool to help patients to, to see the likelihood of outcomes um, and it also helps them make a decision about whether, for example, they want to have treatment now or Or later. Mm -hmm. Um, I I I recommend often patients uh, look at sites regarding well-being, it's helpful to to develop mental strategies to deal with uh, cancer, so that includes um, aspects of physical health as well, so making sure that they're looking at the whole body, all aspects of their their lives, a holistic approach to their health. Mm -hmm. and those aspects of things make, make life much better. Prostate Cancer UK has plenty of information which patients can use also to help guide them through their journey. And in fact, uh, Prostate Cancer UK does consider depression to be an, an important problem that men have to deal with when they're diagnosed with prostate cancer. The most important thing about, uh, I think, dealing with cancer when, when people are exa- anxious or concerned about it is trying to work out as, as much information find as much information about the disease how it's relevant to them yes. and then to work out what strategies are likely to reduce their anxiety so for some people it's lack of control mm-hmm. so if it's if the problem is lack of control then work out what aspects of those that disease can i manage now you, you can't necessarily change what's in the prostate gland itself but what you can do is influence those factors that can alter the progression of the disease so we know for example that weight is very important. So we need men to control that. So many of the patients I see are overweight, they're obese. It's mm-hmm. important to get your weight down. So weight down through diet so, and also by exercise. Both are independently important in reducing the risk for cancer overall, but also probably the progression for prostate cancer. Similarly, mm-hmm. you can control what you eat. Mm-hmm. So um, we know that um, a diet rich in red meat and animal protein and dairy protein it seems to increase the chance of prostate cancer development, but also the chance of it progressing and possibly for, uh, prostate cancer-related death. So that's another thing you can control. So okay. there's there's weight, diet, exercise, and then there's the various other components of diet that one can do. But also you can choose or help to choose um, what form of, of management of disease you can have. So yes, you can choose active surveillance, but also you can choose treatment. And being informed about the various form, uh, types of treatment can Put you in a better position where you are controlling the disease and the disease is not controlling you. Mm-hmm. And you would probably place focal therapy in, in, um, so in that space? Absolutely. So, focal therapy is a treatment for prostate cancer that is effective. So, early on in the disease, so many of the patients we see who will uh, have significant disease but many, many years of life to live do not necessarily want to have a life where they're constantly just being monitored. They'd rather take action, they'd rather deal with the problems there and then. So focal therapy enables you to destroy or get rid of that part of the prostate where the cancer is located, again with a small margin around it. And by getting rid of the cancer, you can deal with the anxiety relating to prostate cancer itself, you can easily be, be sure that you're not going to suffer the problem again but at the same time by preserving your prostate you can maintain those aspects of your life which are important. So for example sexual activity but also being able to stay dry. I mean the, one of the main problems with for example surgery with the prostate is that that men leak urine afterwards, mm. even though we've improved our techniques. Mm-hmm. And so by by preserving the prostate, you can keep your erections, you can keep your bladder control. So if you play football or you like to cycle or you run or you do heavy activities, mm-hmm. then you can keep doing that as well. Worrying yeah, about really having important. to, to mm. wear a pad, for example, or mm. you know wh- having to change your underwear multiple times during the day. So now we, with focal therapy, we've reached a situation where you can deal with the cancer and still keep your life pretty much as it was before so that's not to say that fits all men with prostate cancer yeah there are you know significantly at least a quarter of the men who have been diagnosed with early prostate cancer are suitable for focal therapy yeah and for them it gives them a great opportunity to to really um get uh, to really perhaps change their lives for the better and hopefully permanently
0: Yeah, I mean, you've made a a very strong case linking, um, you know, how focal therapy also can reduce the anxiety both associated with either end of the spectrum, both more radical treatments and equally um, active surveillance. I mean, do do you feel that many patients are counseled in that way?
1: Currently, no, um, and they're not. And the reason they're not is because... uh, but largely, there's still a somewhat lack of awareness of focal therapy as a potential treatment. Also, the other reason probably is because most of us who are trained are trained to, to operate or trained to give radiotherapy. And so uh, most of the clinicians are not aware. And so they, they're not naturally going to uh, offer it. Um, in fact, we f- often find that patients are the biggest drivers. So many of the patients who see NEFRIT are people who have looked out for alternative treatments for prostate cancer that can uh, give them what they want, that peace of mind that they can have prostate cancer treated with less side effects than clinicians we are keen to offer.
0: So um, one thing that's been in the back of my mind, given the time we're having this conversation, is is, um, we hear about these these, um, large delays in both the diagnostics and treatment of of all cancers, but um, prostate cancer is is included in that, and and that's because of the diversion of resources to, to COVID. I mean, can you comment on the extent of the delays and and how that's um, affected prostate cancer diagnostics and treatment specifically, and and maybe link that back to levels of anxiety that patients may be feeling because they are on this kind of backlog, as it were.
1: As you can imagine, if you've just been diagnosed with cancer, you want obviously to have the best diagnostics possible and be offered the best treatment that you can. Um, And with the COVID crisis, of course, many patients have, not being able to see their GPs in the way they normally would do. They mm-hmm. probably haven't had as many PSA tests if, or had any PSA tests. And then in hospitals, uh, some of the hospitals were not um, offering MRI scans, and uh, were not offering prostate biopsies. So many patients were told, well, you know, I'm afraid you, you may be at risk of prostate cancer, but at the moment we're going to have to defer till the COVID-19 pandemic has, has really passed. And so, of course, again, that's another troublesome situation for a man and his family to -hmm. find that, well, you've just been told you might have prostate cancer, but because your risk is not high enough, we're not going to be able to do anything at this time. we have to defer things for several months. Mm -hmm. Um, And similarly, we've had uh, patients who've had a diagnosis of prostate cancer who have been told, well, we would normally treat you by surgery or radiotherapy, uh, but at the moment we can't do so. So what we're going to do is kind of, we suggest you go into hormonal therapy That's, uh, yeah. which is called androgen deprivation therapy yeah. and, and that that means effectively chemically castrating men which means mm. getting rid of the male hormone testosterone yes. and that can have quite profound side effects I mean you can get uh, men get hot flushes they can lose muscle mass sometimes they can get muddled thinking they put on weight um, you know used for very long periods of time it can cause problems with bones not that that's hopefully going to happen. Yeah. Um, um, and that changes changes many aspects of their life. And of course, with androgen deprivation comes loss of erections for most men who have it. So yes, it has been very difficult. So the traditional treatments, like the big treatments, like surgery and radiotherapy, have been very difficult to, live, to deliver. But um, uh, other treatments, like focal therapy, have been more safely delivered because they're, if you like, less toxic um, insults on the human body so that they're, they're, they're easier to sustain. So a man having, for example, vocal therapy by HIFU, he comes in, has, has his procedure, usually it's done as a day case nowadays, and he can go home and he doesn't necessarily have to stay in the hospital. So, so it is a treatment that we can deliver more easily during this time. But is it being delivered um, by the NHS? At the moment, very few treatments for prostate cancer yeah. have been delivered, although it has restarted in many areas now, but in very constrained circumstances. So, yes, there's, there's a big backlog of patients. I've uh, heard of some patients being told that they, that they cannot have definitive treatment of any kind till probably the end of the year, mm. and that they'll need to stay on hormonal therapy till that time. Yeah, that's a terrible uh, thing to impose on somebody, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a great worry for the, for the patient for his family. And, you know, to know that during this time that the cancer is being suppressed, but not actually treated is, is really less than ideal.
0: But the, the fact is that you um, and your colleagues at the focal therapy clinic are, are um, available to actually treat patients now in, in some dedicated um,
1: private clinics. We're able to uh, treat patients absolutely. So we can deliver focal therapy as usually as a day case, as I say, so you come in and go out the same day with very high uh, levels of protection to avoid any risk for infection. And the, tre- the treatment is uh, given, patients go home, and then we see them again shortly afterwards. And again, it's something that can be done relatively safely compared to, example, radical prostatectomy, which I also do. Um, and so many patients have sought to have focal therapy for that reason.
0: Mark, thank you so much for your insights. And I could talk to you for a very long time about this. And we do live in interesting times um, for certain I look forward to speaking with you again soon. If you'd like to learn more about Mark's work and about The Focal Therapy Clinic, visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk. And from me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.